This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by CLR. You know it's manly? Cleanliness. Yes, really. And with CLR, you can master the art of cleanliness. CLR keeps everything sparkling by dissolving dirt, calcium, lime, hard water deposits, and soap scum. No scrubbing, no harsh chemicals, pretty darn manly. So trust your clean to CLR. Visit clrbrands.com or pick up a bottle from a retailer near you. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In an effort to get more done and be our best selves, many of us have turned to life hacks that we find in blogs, books, and podcasts. I've personally experimented with several life hacks in the past decade, and we've even written about some on AOM. But are there downsides to trying to hack your way through life? My guest took a look at both the positives and negatives of life hacking in his book, Hacking Life, Systemized Living and Its Discontents. His name is Joseph Regal, and he's a professor of communication studies at Northwestern University. We begin our conversation with a history of the life hacking movement and how blogging in the early 2000s made this obscure cultural movement among computer programmers go mainstream. Joseph then discusses how he distinguishes between nominal life hacking and optimal life hacking and between geeks and gurus. We then discuss some of the beneficial productivity and motivation hacks out there and also how there are ways they can go astray, including only working for a certain class of people and becoming too much of a focus in life. We also discuss how the minimalism movement can sometimes lead to contradictory impulses and we end our conversation talking about how using spiritual practices like meditation or Stoicism as hacks can strip them of their deeper spiritual context. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash hacking life. Joseph joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Joseph Regal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you just published a book, Hacking Life, Systemized Living and Its Discontents. And it's a, it's a look at the life hacking movement that started in the early 2000s and has had a big influence on internet culture. And it's something that I've experimented with over the years and done different life hacking things. Before we get into the specifics, for those who aren't familiar with the phrase life hacking, what is a life hack? At the simplest level, it's a quick or clever fix that's often systematic. Either you build up a system for taking advantage of something or you figure out a way to maybe bend the rules of an existing system. Gotcha. And and where did this the whole thing come out of? Like, what's the history of, of life hacking? Well, since we spoke of the definition, it's actually interesting to think about the origins of the term itself. And uh, back in the late 1950s, believe it or not, there was a model railroad club at MIT and they were building this huge train platform and there was various groups in the club and the one was like the systems club subcommittee and they had this mass of wires and relays and they really loved this system and they were fascinated about how all the interconnections work together and they ended up de- developing a lot of jargon. And one of the terms they came up with in the 1950s was hack and they called it a hack is a way to avoid the standard solution. So that was the birth of this geeky term way back in the late 1950s. And that term has continued on over the decades in the computer realm. And life hacking is really the emergence of that approach of avoiding the standard solution into all domains of life as a type of self-help. Right. So yeah, you, you, I remember hearing even like in the nineties, right? I heard the, the phrase hacker refused, you know, referring to a computer guy who was able to subvert computer systems. But like, mm-hmm. when did the, like, when did the people start putting life in front of hacking? Like, when did that first start happening? Mm-hmm. That was thanks to Danny O'Brien in 2004. He's worked at the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's been an author for uh, O'Reilly, the technical publisher. And there was a conference happening in the West Coast. And he noted that what he called alpha geeks, really good programmers, were very, very productive and efficient, and they could stay on top of the deluge that everyone else was overwhelmed with. And so he said, let's have a life hacking sort of session where we look at these alpha geeks, at these really good hackers, and ask them how they managed to do that, and to what extent that the people who are coming to this session have figured out little tips or tricks we can share them amongst ourselves. So that's really where it came from. It was a gathering of writers and programmers trying to figure out how they could stay on top of the information that's just deluging all of us. And it was all about, I mean, it sounds like what it was about at first was like getting more done Mm -hmm. more quickly, correct? 
the people often turn to this idea of efficiency, that if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you have too much email, then problem is necessarily to somehow be able to process your emails quicker, more efficiently, and get down to inbox zero, which was one of Merlin Mann's ideas. He was an early life hacker too. And Merlin Mann actually promoted the idea. I think he's one of the first ones that really made a going practice of it on his blog. And Merlin Mann, Danny O'Brien, and then Gina Trapani, she created the site lifehacker.com. So I think that's when it really went mainstream. There was a, a website dedicated to the topic. People could go and read daily blog posts. And then Tim Ferriss came along. And I think with his four-hour work week, he took the idea mainstream. And he doesn't like to use the term life hacker. He prefers to call himself a guinea pig or a lifestyle designer. But you can still see the hacker ethos is very much present in Ferris's work. And so this was around, I remember when this happened, this was like 2005, 2006, right? When Merlin Mann and Gina Triapani with the life hacker, that, that's when that started getting going, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I remember when I first discovered Lifehacker, like I devoured the archives. I thought I discovered this just amazing well of useful knowledge and help me get because when I was in law school and I was like really worried about getting a lot done because I had a lot on my plate. And I, you know, I remember Merlin Mann uncovering him and learning about the hipster PDA. I even made a hipster PDA. And we'll talk about some of the specific tactics that they talked about. But before we get at staying broad, staying high level, like how is life hacking different from just general self-help and productivity advice that's been that we've had in America and in the West for hundreds of years? Life hacking is a type of self-help. I call it a type of self-help for the 21st century. And if you look at the history of self-help, there's a really nice history written by Stephen Starker. And he writes that self-help is a reflection of the fears and hopes of a people in their moment in time. And if you look back at that history, say you go back to the 1890s when self-help really first became a genre, you can see a lot of the self-help was uh, predicated on the idea of being open to divine intervention. So the self-help, you know, was very kind of spiritually Christian inflected. And then in the 1930s, when we have the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, the self-help was kind of about how you could be like them. Why don't you follow their lead? And similarly, through the subsequent decades of the 20th century and then into the 21st century, self-help is, well, let's look at the alpha geeks, see what they do, and then we'll follow their lead. So life hacking is a type of self-help. It's not different at all. It's just self-help for our current moment. And that current moment is it's coming, like a lot of the culture that we have in business is coming out of Silicon Valley. So what's going on there influences what life hacking is. Right. Life hacking is a response to a world in which other people are both, we're, we're a bit alienated from them, but we're, they're also just a button click away on our phones and it's not even a button, it's a swipe more often. It's a world in which we don't have fixed schedules so much, but we still feel like we have this lead over from our work lives into our personal lives. It's a world where we can outsource. It's a world where we're being outsourced and we experience, as some uh, scholars refer to it, increasing precarity in terms of knowing who we are and how we can earn our living It's also a moment in which we're overwhelmed with choices. We now have so many choices between how we proceed in our lives and a short-sighted way of looking at modernity in the current moment is all of this stuff is good, all these choices, all these opportunities, all these things that we can or can't do, the flexibility we have, that should make us really, really happy. But it turns out we're still just animals. We're social animals and all that choice is overwhelming us. Life hacking is a self-help for responding to that glut of information and choice and flexibility. Right. And it's responding to like, and it's, I think it's an interesting point how self-help, the self-help genre changes based on the culture and the, the, the governing like maybe business practice or whatever. So in the thirties and forties, it was more, you know, yeah, like you said, the Rockefellers, maybe in the fifties and sixties is more managerial. Mm-hmm. I think it's when Peter Drucker's stuff was really popular about managing yourself. And now it's computer. So like we, the analogies we use for self-help is often very computer-based. Right. Both the stressors is, are coming from this information world and the analogies and the metaphors we use to approach and deal with those stresses is also by way of computers. And I think you can see this in the online dating world as well, particularly like maybe pickup artistry. Mystery said in his book, he came up with the algorithm for seducing uh, women. 
And so again, they're using those metaphors as you just alluded to. Well, so you, uh, you make some distinctions within life hacking. The first distinction you make, there's a difference between geeks and gurus. Uh, what's that difference and why is that important? Yeah, I think it's important to make distinctions, at least in, in the academic world, when people do something critical, like Matt Thomas wrote a really nice dissertation of, of life hacking, a critical history. And it's important to be critical, to point out the flaws and the short-sightedness, but then you just sort of damn the whole phenomenon. And I wasn't interested in that, one, because I have a geeky, hackerish kind of sensibility myself, and two, people are struggling. They're trying to figure out how the, the best path to pursue in life. And just to say, well, you know, anyone that makes use of self-help as a fool or a tool or something like that isn't very helpful at all. So the thing I am interested in is making distinctions. And so one of the first distinctions I make is between geeks and gurus. So I don't want to condemn anyone and everyone that's been interested in life hacking. That would include myself and a lot of people I know and care about. But nonetheless, there are people out there pushing some snake oil and it begs credulity and so i want to make a distinction between the ordinary people who are trying to cope and who are trying to like live good lives like that's not such a bad thing we should all be aspiring to to live a good life and the people then who are then selling the snake oil right and guru also i don't mean to be intentionally insulting gurus are people who offer you advice and i could say there's good gurus and bad gurus but then the questions that we should ask of the gurus is you know are the advice that is the advice that they're giving us solid, you know, reasoned, and how much are they charging for it? So I would ask different questions of both of those constituencies, the geeks and the gurus. And also the gurus, one thing is like another question you asked. I've, I've begun, you know, I've started a question is like, well, is this applicable to me? Like it might work for you, right? Uh, because you're in a position where it, that works for you, but it might not work for average Joe who has a regular job, it might not work for them. Yeah. And this is one of the uh, inherit biases and self-help is very often the people who are offering their advice is very much predicated on their own life experiences. So one of the distinctions I make that I think is important about life hacking is it's really self-help for the creative class. And I think there's two constituencies in our contemporary economy. There are people that have a lot of flexibility who have the ability to control their calendar, the ability to pursue their path in life. And again, that can be a stressful thing. But that's very different from the person who is now working as a picker at an Amazon warehouse. They have a very regimented life. And to speak as someone, a member of the creative class and tell a picker at an Amazon warehouse, these very individualistic entrepreneurial approaches that I'm using are necessarily going to help you. And if you don't manage to help yourself through the advice that I'm giving you, it's your fault. I think that's problematic. Right. It's not helpful for sure. And then, so another distinction you make also is different types of hacking. So there, you say there's, there's nominal hacking and there's optimal hacking. What's the difference there? Yeah. The, the nominal is kind of an engineering word. So in a way it's fitting, but I have people who read the book said you shouldn't use the word nominal. It is too geeky. But the temptation is if I don't use the term nominal is to use the word normal, but that just tends to be overloaded. So life hacking is a type of self-enhancement as well as a self-help. You're improving yourself. And when you think about normal, like what is a normal nose in a world of rhinoplasty? or in a world where a particular shape of nose is considered a better, more normal nose than other noses. Normal is interesting and has all its own sort of complexities and problems associated with it. But I just wanted to distinguish between the people who are trying to get back to a nominal state, a state where they're not having migraines, a state where they're able to maintain a relatively healthy body, and and to distinguish between the people who are really pushing the leading edge, people who are trying to you know, do extraordinary feats of athleticism and health. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but they're two different classes of people and approaches to life. And again, I think we can ask different questions of, of both of them. Yeah, the optimize. We, maybe we can get to specifics of optimization or optimizing mm-hmm. hacking. So like one would be some of these folks who do like polyphagic sleep. I remember when that was a big thing mm-hmm. where you only sleep like a few hours a day, but you use these naps, you're able to like to work more. That would be an example of optimizing hacking, right? Yes. A nominal hack would be, can I get a decent seven, eight hours of sleep at night? Uh, And the optimal hack is, can I get through the day by taking, say, 10-minute naps every two hours? And when you sum that up, it's actually very few hours indeed, and you can be so much more efficient. And people have been experimenting with that for a period. Buckminster Fuller, that guy who did geodesic domes back in the 1960s and 50s, he supposedly lived his life like that. 
And I know that in the game, Neil Strauss's book about pickup artists, the character Herbal, who also goes, his, his real first name is Tynan, he's experimented with polyphasic sleeping. And the people who try it, again, it's very individualistic, very optimizing approach to life, but people don't stick with it very long because they find it's incompatible with the social world around them. Like the guy who, the guy who wrote the WordPress blog did polyphasic sleeping for about a year, but then he got a girlfriend and she wouldn't, you know, this, she's like, this doesn't work for us. Right. Cosmo Kramer also did polyphasic sleep, I believe, in an episode of Seinfeld. Did he? I'm a big Seinfeld fan. Right. I don't know if I remember that. I think, I, I think it was, I think there was an episode where he did that. I'm going to have to find, I'm going to verify, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure he did that and it didn't work out. He just ended up falling asleep. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And and so, but I mean, I can see like the benefit of nominal hacking, just trying to like get things in order, get your life, you know, running efficiently. And and so it's not craziness all the time. But one of the dangers of optimal hacking, it's sort of the Icarus effect. Like you might reach too far in like optimizing, like you spend a lot of money and time for very little gain. And it also might even make you more fragile in the end, because if if you mess up one thing, like the whole optimization just gets thrown off the track. Yeah, there's a lot of inherent dangers in optimization. One is that when people optimize, they tend to be naive about it. And I think I could see that in some of the people that were trying to hack dating and love. You know, one one hacker went on like 250 dates in a couple of months. And it's like, that can't be very good. Nick Winter is another life hacker. And uh, he wrote a book about productivity hacking. And he wanted to really maximize his productivity, work 120 hour weeks. And he used all these motivation hacks but then he also had to create other things to track and optimize. So he like said, I want to go on 10 dates with my girlfriend and I need to have 12 social events with my friends. And so the danger there is sometimes maybe you optimize the wrong thing or you optimize one thing to the exclusion of everything else. So when people were first introduced to this, they love it. They're like, okay, I can solve my problems by optimizing my productivity. But then they realize productivity is just one piece of their life. And maybe They've distorted their lives by fixating on that one particular thing. Yeah. And the one thing I've seen in my own life, say like, you know, a big idea amongst life hackers is the idea of a morning routine or an evening routine, which can be helpful, mm-hmm. right? It's have some things you do. So you, you set your life in order for the next day or, or, or whatever. But there's a, there comes a point where they, people try to optimize their, their routine and get it down perfectly. And I found when I've, I've done that, it's like, well, if one thing gets off, like I feel like the whole day's ruined. It's like, well... My, my morning routine, my optimized morning routine is off the, the rails. So like the rest of the day is like, like psychologically, it does something to me. Mm-hmm. And that is, again, a lifestyle, uh, a position where you control your morning. The kids haven't woken up screaming, right? The uh, traffic isn't bad. So you have to rush out the door to get to the office. So it has problems both with for the individual who's trying to do it. And again, it assumes a lot about the individual's position in life. Right. My, uh, my morning routine became much more flexible once I had kids because <laughs> there's, there's no, you can't control them. Like they, if they're, if they're sick, they're throwing up. Well, you can't, you can't meditate right. and drink your yerba mate uh, that day. Right. Exactly. Oh, so let's talk about the different um, areas that life hackers are trying to optimize. Um, and as we said earlier, a big area that early life hackers focused on was time, getting more done in less time, being efficient. And people, you know, have various reasons for wanting to get more done so they can have more time to do what they want, uh, make more money, et cetera. So what are some of the, the different life hacks people have used um, and shared with one another to help individuals save more time? There's a couple, and I actually think there's, they're, they're quite useful. I use a couple of them myself. Pomodoro, on the cover of my book, actually, there's a, a tomato timer. And that's the guy who came up with the idea said, instead of getting distracted or uh, working in bouts that then he's exhausted at the end, why doesn't he break up his work into like 30 minute or maybe 50 minute segments and then take a little five minute break and then return to a particular task? So I approach my day very much like this. I have a typing timer that tells me after 50 minutes, I should take a typing break. And that allows me to approach even big tasks by saying, okay, in the next 50 minutes, I just want to get a start on the big task. And then I'll take a break. And then, you know, maybe I'll have something else I want to do in the next task. And, but if, if I want to continue on with that big task, I have a good start. And that's often the hardest thing to approaching a big problem. It also allows you to say, okay, I want to spend you know, three tasks on my big project today, and then I'll spend a 50-minute chunk of time doing email and a 50-minute chunk prepping for a class. And 
Stephen Covey, the author of Seven, uh, The Seven ha- Habits of Effective People, he said, don't prioritize your schedule, schedule your priorities. And so this allows us to sit down and say, okay, what's the big thing that I really want to do today? And that's important because otherwise we're often overwhelmed and we're just dealing with the, you know, the fires that keep emerging instead of focusing on the things that are going to sustain us and uh, lead to our, our growth. Besides those, any other useful ones that you found that are actually, hey, this actually does something? Something when I'm trying to write, I actually do keep account of how much time I spend on task and how many words I write a day. And again, it's not as if I'm going to uh, be really hard on myself if I don't hit my target, but it makes me a little bit more accountable. And Nick Winter is the guy who wrote the book, The Productivity Hacker. And he has a, it, it's, there's a, a good book by Pierce Steele called The Procrastination Equation. And the question is, why do people procrastinate so much? And he had an equation in there that said, your motivation is determined by the expectancy times the value. So what's the likelihood you're going to be able to achieve something by how much value it is to you, divided by the impulsiveness, the degree to which you're going to be distracted, and the delay. How long are you going to wait until you see the actual result? And Nick Winter said about saying, I'm going to take this equation and I'm I'm going to use it not only to get rid of procrastination, but I'm going to use it to maximize my productivity. And his book, The Productivity Hacker, is a wonderful engagement with all the various techniques that are out there, including maximizing that equation. So for example, when he was trying to write some software, he was spending a lot of time fixing bugs, but he realized he didn't have enough users yet. So if he worked on the features, then he would get the users and then he would want to fix the bugs because they would be more valuable to the people out there. Hence, they would be more valuable to him. Other people uh, make use of Ulysses packs, which are sometimes called, which is you commit yourself to a particular course. I don't do this myself, but some people using apps like Stick and BeeMinder, they actually, it's a, it's a web app service where you say, I want to do X, like say I want to walk a, you know, so many steps in a given day. And if you don't do it, you forfeit money. So they actually penalize you and say, you said you're going to spend $10, give us $10 if you fail to do this. And if people fail to do it, they spend the money. And the idea there is they can get you to the level that you want to be doing the thing that you're doing at a, at a reasonable price and cost. And people are happy to pay that. Like if someone has to spend $100 to get up to that level necessary to really make them do the thing that they want to do, they seem to be happy to pay it. Yeah, I've used a lot of those techniques. Uh, the Pomodoro technique I, I use, I've set up my computer so that it blocks distracting websites for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I get as much work as I get done in that. And then in 15 minutes, it like, opens them up and I can check, you know, surf whatever I want. Yeah, one of them is called Freedom. I think on the Mac you can get it and it's called Freedom. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, it's been helpful for me because again, like it's, it's a way to deal, it's a way to cope, right? A lot of these like life hacking stories are a way to cope with the, 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 the current environment we find ourselves in and the current environment is like lots of digital distraction. So another area we've talked about a little bit, sort of goes hand in hand with time management, this idea of motivation where you can hack your motivation. There's lots of blog articles, like 10 tips to supercharge your motivation. There's books about it. So one of the things is the Ulysses pack that can be motivating, knowing that you're going to be writing a check to you. You don't mm-hmm. believe the test. That can be motivating. But there's also other tactics you can use. So what, what are some of those other tactics? Charles Duhigg has written a couple of books on creating good habits, on being uh, hacking your motivation, on not procrastinating. And another idea in there that I actually think is useful is that when you specify your goals, they should be SMART. And the SMART is an acronym for specific, measurable, agreed upon, realistic, and time-bound. <laughs> so the idea, at least then, is when you're looking at your life and you're thinking about what you would like to achieve... Don't rely upon nebulous goals. Make them very specific. Have some sense of, well, how will I know when I've achieved that goal? Get the people around you to buy in on it and try to be realistic and set a reasonable time boundary too. So there's a lot of apps out there. For instance, there's exercise apps that take advantage of this. You set a very specific goal that you want to achieve in a day. Maybe it's part of a larger goal. You can measure it because uh, you have the health sensor or your step counter or your smartphone that can keep track of that. And then even the social aspect is interesting. There are exercise apps where you can have people watching you online, like kind of like an exercise buddy, or you can tell that your friends and family that you're going to do this and they can check in with you to see if you're doing it. So there, so those are things that you know can be useful, right, to, to get motivated. But where do you think motivation and productivity hacking can go awry? 
Yeah. So there's a, again, a couple of angles there for the actual individual. I think a lot of life hackers have encountered some disappointment in their own efforts to be productive and to be motivated. So even, you know, uh, within a couple of years, Merlin Mann at his blog, 43 folders, he decided he actually wasn't happy with what he was doing. So much of this is so alluring. You think this is going to solve my problem. And then you experiment with for a while and you're like, this hasn't really changed my life all that much. And so he called it productivity porn. And he noted that life hackers are very prone to maybe uh, fixating on if I only had the right pen or the right app or the right notebook, I would be able to deal with all the stuff that I'm confronting, all the work that I have to do. And that they spend a lot of time browsing blogs about life hacking, about motivation, about productivity, and are not implementing it or they're using it to distract themselves. Heidi Wooderhouse is another hacker and she wrote a, uh, she did a really nice talk for her entitled productivity hacking for the, the rest of us. And she caught all of this process fondling. And she said something like, if you spend more than half an hour a day working on your tools or reading about how to be more productive and how motivated you're, you're losing. So for the, for, the, for the sake of the individual, there's certain excesses people can fall into. And then at the, the larger scale, again, I have questions about, you know, we seem to be living in a world where everyone expects us to be more productive, more productive. And if we succeed and we're more productive, that just kind of raises the bar for everyone else. And to what extent then do the companies start expecting this of us? So if the individual wants to go out and they want to do their job better, that's great. But, you know, that, that Pavlock wrist zapper that zaps you if you're not being productive, if you've gotten distracted, if you go on Facebook, that's for the individual to pur purchase. But what happens when corporations start using tactics like that? And Amazon actually has, it's not a zapper, but it vibrates to supposedly help pickers in their warehouse. They've pat patented that technology. China is a bit scary because they're embracing a lot of these technologies. And there are helmets that they have uh, train conductors wear that can tell them when they're being distracted. And again, that's kind of a good thing if it's going to keep safe people being transported on trains. But they also have these gadgets that you can stick in classrooms that recognize the students' faces and recognize when they're paying attention. And there we're definitely encroaching upon scary, dystopic sort of vision of society. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Turn your dream into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace is the tool for you. And they got beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can get a great looking website up yourself in just a few minutes. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Buying domains is simple and you'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. I've used Squarespace, used Squarespace to create a website for my wife's 20th anniversary, sold tickets, literally got it done in about 15 minutes. Super cool. Check it out. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for your free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash manliness offer code manliness. Also by Indochino. Everyone knows the difference between a custom-made suit and an off-the-rack suit is like night and day. Indochino makes getting a personalized suit exciting and easy. Here's how it works. You visit one of Indochino's 40 showrooms across North America, then a stylist takes your measurements and help you pick out your suit fabric and your style of suit you want, or you can take your measurements at home and shop online at Indochino.com, and then a professionally tailored suit will be mailed to you in a couple of weeks. I'd done this. I have a navy blue suit that I got from Indochino. It's a great process. First, you get to custom it, decided that I wanted no pleats on this suit, no cuffs on this one. I got to decide what fabric was, the color of it, how I wanted the pockets to look on the jacket. Then I take the measurements and it's this easy to follow video guide, really easy. Sent them in on the website. And then in a few weeks, I got a navy blue suit sent to my door and it fit like a glove. And this week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $369 at Indochino.com when entering code manliness at checkout. Plus shipping is free. That's Indochino.com promo code manliness to get any premium suit. Again, this is made to measure and you get to customize it for just $369 and free shipping. That's about the price you're going to pay for an off the rack suit at a department store. It's a great deal. Go check it out. Indochino.com promo code manliness. And now back to the show. 
Right. So my, this, you might not be a big one if you're just imposing it upon yourself. You decide I'm going to zap myself so I can be more productive. Okay. But like once a corporation starts deciding we're going to start using these tactics to get more out of you, then that's, that's crossing a line. Yeah. And the line, it's, it's a slippery slope. It's definitely a gray area. So you, cho- you choose to do it for yourself. Like there's a lot of health, health programs at companies. And that's great if you want to be healthy and the individual chooses to do that. And then the company says, we'll give you a little bit of money back if you, you know, join this program in your health insurance that you pay every month. And that's another step. And then maybe this step becomes that it's required that you participate, even if you're going to work here. And then we're definitely in the dystopic territory. I mean, yeah, it is dystopic in China because they have that whole social credit system, which oh, does so scary. Which is doing what you're talking about. It's like in order to, I don't know, just buy things or like you know, you you have to have a good social credit score, and if you don't, you're going to get turned away from businesses or loans or whatever. Right. You can't rent a car. You can't travel. Uh, so yeah, very scary. So that's where it could go. Yeah, that, that's I think where. So. Yeah, that's where like hacking motivation could get dystopic. Well, let's talk about another one. You you talk about this in the book. I think is interesting. There's lots of little different subcultures and niches within life hacking, and one that popped up uh, shortly after life hacking became mainstream was this idea of minimalism. What's the what's the draw of life hackers to minimalism? Again, we live in a world in which we have so much choice. We have plenty of possessions. Most people in America are not struggling because they don't have enough possessions or they don't have enough food. Obesity is more of a problem in America than malnutrition. Malnutrition is still a problem, but obesity has actually outpaced it. And we have plenty of reality TVs about hoarders. And so we are really facing this conundrum of maybe a hundred years ago, we thought as the middle class was growing, if people only had more food, maybe more eat, meat to eat, if we only had more positions, if everyone had a home and then they could fill that home with stuff, they would be happy and content. Well, we've arrived at that moment and people aren't necessarily happy and content. And so we ask the question, well, what now? And one of those uh, knee-jerk sort of reactions is to say, well, what happens if I get, a ver- get rid of everything? And that makes sense. I think there's a reason that Marie Kondo and her Marie method is so popular and is now was, was popular in Japan and now even has a Netflix show here in the United States. And I think minimalism had a lot of reasons, and it's, it addressed a number of problems of people working super long hours to buy houses, to fill them with stuff. And we don't need all of that stuff to be happy. And I think that's one of the insights we can learn. But again, people can go a bit too far, and the minimalism itself can become fetishized. No, yeah. And so you, what I thought was interesting about minimalism, so yeah, it's useful, right? You don't need a lot of stuff to be happy. I think we can all agree on that. That's something that we've, people, human beings have been talking about for thousands of years. But yeah, there's a point where the whole point of your life becomes minimalism. And then you, so you talk about all these blogs that popped up where people would write like, oh, I just have these 10 things. And they would just the hundred thing challenge. Yeah, the hundred thing challenge. Here's the hundred things I own, and it allows you to, you know, be ind- location independent. But I think it's interesting too. Sort of, so th- there, there's this dico- there's this paradox with minimalism. If you go too far with it, where you 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 say you reject stuff, but at the same time, the stuff you you keep you hold on to like becomes super important. Like so, stuff becomes really important to you, and like you sort of, like you said, fetishize it. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I think in response, again, this was an interesting fad that happened about 10 years ago. People went super gung-ho, and then they realized, huh, this isn't making me completely happy. A life hacker that I spoke to used a a pseudonym, Rita Holt. She had been into minimalism 100%. She got rid of all her stuff. She quit her job. She was traveling around, writing blog posts and writing eBooks. And then I went back to look at one of the sources as I was writing the book, and all of her websites were gone. And so then I said, what happened? And she said she had just realized that it was this kind of empty life and everyone was kind of competing to be who could be most minimalist. And it wasn't really clear that anyone was living that much more of a satisfied life, or maybe these people were just outliers. And she scrapped it all. So this was definitely a phenomenon of having this huge bloom of hype and fad, and then it kind of dissipated, but it never goes away forever. So even after the whole minimalism phase, Greg McGowan, who is a Silicon Valley kind of coach. He wrote a book called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And he never mentions minimalism because I think it had become sufficiently tarred for 
reasons that I mentioned and others. But then he just sort of shifted the goal, the, the term he was using and said, let's focus on what is essential. So that was an interesting turn. It's the same thing with uh, Marie Kondo. She says, don't fixate on how much stuff you have and getting rid of stuff instead of focus on what's really important. And so I think the move from minimalism to essentialism was a similar sort of focus, but still it is very much preoccupied with stuff, the both of them. And what intrigues me is, uh, we might talk about this, but so much of life hacking is inspired by the Zen ascetic and various mindfulness practices. And Siddhartha's own story was one, he was born into extraordinarily wealth. His parents provided him a palace, dancing girls, parties, food. He decided that was not for him. He went out, traveled the world, learned from various masters, became very ascetic, almost starved himself to death, and then decided, huh, neither of those were good. I'm going to pursue the middle path, <laughs> moderation. So though I've said that self-help recurs, you know, ha- has happened throughout human history, and it speaks to the, the fears and hopes and wishes of the people of their moment, a lot of the insights persist decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia. And I think we can see Siddhartha's story actually in the movement from product, productivity hackers to minimalists to essentialists. I mean, have you, did you notice that when you talked to these, a lot of these life hackers, like they were all in at the very beginning, just like became fanatics about it. And then eventually they just took a more moderate approach to it. Most of them have, like no one, few people are fixating on a hundred things anymore, particularly when they get kids. Rita Holt scratched it all, lives a much more moderated life. So it was a fad. And again, it's not that it's not helpful to think critically about, am I beholden to the objects? And am I worried about getting more stuff to fill my house with? But as you said in your own blog post many years ago about this, it can become yet another preoccupation with stuff. And the whole point is to get beyond stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what I know. I've talked about like my grandfather, part of the greatest generation, and he tended to hoard stuff. And that was probably because like he grew up in the great, you know, the great depressions where it's like stuff was like something you could use. Right. Mm-hmm. But what I, what, I, what I thought was interesting about him, he was never really overly preoccupied with stuff. Like he didn't think too much about it. But like, you know, yeah, these sort of like these MacBook minimalists that you call in the book, I thought was a good phrase, just super like, this is my pen. This is the greatest mm-hmm. pen in the world. Here's why it's the greatest pen. And I use my moleskin notebook and it's so wonderful and it feels so good. And it's like, man, you really love stuff for a person who says they don't need stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. So we need to get beyond stuff. And then there's chapters on relationships and even meaning or spirituality hacking. Well, we'll talk about in the bit. I mean, what, one thing I want to get into, there's so many things we can talk about, but one I want to talk about is the, this quantified self-movement that, that has popped up amongst life hackers where they're, they, they track their health or not even just their physical health, maybe their psychological health. And they do that with the purpose of hopefully finding insights to optimize their life. When did that whole quantified self-movement start? This was in the, the late, aughts, the late 2000s. And a couple of people were behind it, but I think one of the most notable people was Kevin Kelly. He used to uh, be uh, editor-in-chief at Wired Magazine. He worked on some of the whole Earth catalogs in the decades before. And he's really been behind a lot of this. He, he helped with The Well, which was an early Digerati bulletin board system pre-internet. He, ha- he worked with uh, Stuart Brand, putting together one of the early hacker conferences. He now runs the blog Cool Tools, which is kind of a reincarnation of the whole Earth catalog. And the whole idea with the quantified self, their little uh, uh, motto is self-knowledge through numbers. And in some of his early pieces, he said that if we can quantify our lives, like how many steps we take, how many things we eat, how many hours we sleep, all kinds of things, not only will we be able to figure out how to sleep better or how to be more productive, but what is human? Is human nature fixed, sacred, and infinitely expandable? And I'm quoting him there. So he can be quite utopic or far-sighted in terms of what he thinks this might bring about. And now we're also uh, moving into people like uh, people who believe that one day computer artificial intelligences are going to be sufficiently advanced that we might be able to become cyborgs or maybe upload our own minds into computers. And things get a little bit kooky there, but that, this is one of those places where I think it's useful to distinguish between the geeks and the gurus. Because I met lots of people who, for instance, suffer from migraines, really bad migraines. 
And they do keep very careful track of the potential triggers, like were they exposed much late during the day or did they eat a particular food? And so I can totally appreciate that. I have various health trivial concerns that I would like to see improved and I try to approach them in that way. But when people start quantifying everything without any particular cause and then they accumulate so much data that they then start seeing ghosts in that data. You know, they're just looking for something to find. And so I think that speaks to some of the dangers that when we just start experimenting with everything, trying to optimize various things in a very individualistic way, there are excesses and possible dangers. And health is one where life hacking can get dangerous because people often go beyond just nominal right hacking where you're just like okay i'm getting enough sleep i'm exercising enough i'm eating you know a balanced diet where this is where you start taking supplements or you start doing crazy things that uh that there's really not not a lot of research about or like it might even put your health mm-hmm. in peril yeah serge fugo is is someone who was just uh in the news a month or two ago and he has a post and he got a lot of coverage saying that he spent two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on his biohacking and his blog posts are extraordinary they're really long they have all these figures and his lipid levels and all these weird memes and he's taken hundreds of supplements and just from a common sense point of view you'd have to wonder if you think these supplements are actually efficacious what about their interactions like how can you take a hundred supplements and then figure out how you're improving, why you're improving, if you have a side effect, what is the side effect being caused by? So I guess you could say in some sense, these people are maybe doing us a favor. They're acting as guinea pigs for the rest of society. But I, but I like, for instance, I don't know how much Fugot's uh, findings are going to be useful <laughs> to science. And he's certainly spending a lot of money doing all this. And he hasn't suffered yet, but there is a fellow named Aaron Trawick who was really into biohacking and he was injecting himself at conferences with gene therapy concoctions. And he did eventually die. It doesn't appear he died because of his gene therapy in- injections, but he, he died in a, a total immersion tank. It was probably probably on some drugs and maybe he drowned himself. But that still was like the idea that you have to take MDM and, and, and go into an immersion tank and float there and maybe drown. I think that, that is scary. And again, I don't think from a self-help point of view, we should be listening to those people as gurus. That's dangerous stuff. And if they want to do it, that's fine. But I don't think people should look to them as that's the path I should be pursuing. And what's interesting too, you note throughout the book with, I mean, a lot of these life hacker types, they're, they're typically computer, they're out of, like computer programmers. They're very analytical. But with a lot of them, there's also this strain of magical thinking. Like you talk about uh, the people who want to live forever and upload their brain to a computer. There's uh, that Ray, how do you say his last name? Kurtzweil. Kurtzweil, mm-hmm. right? This is, he's, he works for Google. He's a futurist. He's the guy that coined the term singularity when the computers will take over. But he's like taking hundreds of supplements a day in the hopes that he can live long enough to have his brain uploaded to a computer. But like that, that's it's kind of, that's sort of magical to think that that's possible, right? It is. And this is a difficult thing to reconcile. I haven't gotten my head fully around it, but in some ways, these people are very, very rational the way they approach things, but they're also not immune to magical thinking, as you put it. An interesting side about Kurtzweil, I, I don't think he's taken a hundred supplements. I think he's honed it down a little bit, but at some point he was taking so many supplements that he actually hired an assistant to keep track of his supplements. And again, we get back into that thing of like, this. these are very wealthy people that can afford to do this sort of thing. Serge Fugot is a very wealthy person to be able to spend $250,000 on biohacking. And I can't help but wonder like, boy, if you had spent some of that money, uh, maybe getting vitamin A supplements for people in India or something like that, you could have saved hundreds of lives. And, and, but like you said, like you talk to a lot of these guys, particularly with the health thing, with the quantified self stuff, and they'd say, well, I just do this thing and it just works. I don't know why, but like it works. And like, well, you know, you could always say, well, it could be placebo, right? Like that could be the thing why, like you think it works, so it works. Yeah. I, I was reading recently that there's a couple of psychologists uh, that are pushing this idea of RQ as a complement to IQ. And the research does show that intelligence does not necessarily correlate with rationality. And they have a particular test where they they test against magical thinking. But in a more common sense, when we talk about life hackers and their rationality, that's more of a cognitive style. They tend to be more analytical, but it doesn't mean that they necessarily have 
the understanding of the sort of cognitive mistakes and biases we can make even when we think we're being analytical. Well, I think I've read studies about that similar where it's typically like really intelligent people that fall for cults. Yes. Because they're able to think their way like, oh, this makes sense. They're they're able to be more analytical about like why it's a good idea to join the cult. And they're able to, when people say, hey, you're in a cult, they're like, well, no, I'm not. Here are the reasons why and blah, 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 blah. I can see something similar going on possibly uh, with life hackers. Like, well, it works for this this reason because I'm seeing the data and I see a pattern there. And they're like, well, no, that could be placebo. Like, no, really, here's the data. And it's like, well, might not be the case. Yeah, people can be very good at rationalizing, at justifying what they do. And the more intelligent they are, the, the better at it they seem to be. Uh, so you mentioned this earlier. There's also this strain within life hacking about hacking meaning, right? And uh, life hackers tend to be drawn to uh, Asian philosophy, and that's where the, like, the whole minimalism thing came out of. But also stoicism. What do you what do you think is the appeal there for life hackers to stoicism and Buddhism and, and other Asian philosophies besides Buddhism? Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly, they're the two ones that I'm most interested in. I've been a practicing Buddhist for over a decade, and I've been reading Seneca and other authors in Stoicism for, for many, many years across different translations. And, and what is nice is that they don't in, uh, invoke a lot of magical thinking. There's no gods that you're necessarily calling upon to help you change your life. They are very suitable for the individual because it's like, this is your life. Things are going to happen in your life that you don't necessarily like, and somehow you need to cope. And there they give recommendations for coping. They recommend a moderate approach to life. The Stoics, for example, have all these interesting practices where you try to be grateful for whatever it is that you have, to practice living hard so that you won't so you won't fear when difficult things appear in your life. You'll be like, well, I've been through this or worse, so I can deal with it. So I think there's a lot of wisdom there that I try to take advantage of and that's available for other people. But again, given that this is life hacker and given that people can get a bit excessive and optimize the wrong things, there are dangers. What do you think those dangers are? It is a very individualistic uh, sort of approach. So one of the folks I talk about in the book, he decided that he was completely dissatisfied with the life hacking world. So he had gone through this whole progression of being really productive and then that didn't work and then being a minimalist and that didn't work. And then, so he said, I'm going to, I'm going to do an ancient wisdom experiments. I'm not, I'm going to do these experiments where I follow the practices and teachings of these various traditions that have been around for at least 500 years. And he dabbled with, you know, a good dozen spiritual and philosophical traditions. And for instance, when it came to Buddhism, he just would sit quietly and meditate. And that is a big important practice of some aspects of Buddhism, especially say Zen and mindfulness, but he did it alone. And I think the thing that he failed to recognize, and also when people do this in Stoicism, is that these were very much community and mentorship type practices and cultures. Right, we had Socrates taught Plato, taught Aristotle, and Buddhism, and particularly in Zen, there's a tradition, a lineage that goes back 1,500 years of transmission. Transmission, and there's the sangha that supports you. So I think one of the dangers with the uh, sometimes what is called mindfulness is that it, again, it's, it's very individualistic. It's very rational. You think you can figure it out. You think that you are rational, hence you might not see some of your biases and limitations. And then again, there's the social angle. So one of the criticisms of McMindfulness is that maybe the reason that this has been picked up at Google under the banner of Wisdom 2.0 is that because it's good for business. So Ming Ten, he's the guy that set up the search inside yourself. And his book is very good, but he was a Googler that started offering meditation classes and they really took off. And then they started having this Wisdom 2.0 conference out on the West Coast. And he actually said that, you know, and this isn't the only thing he has said, but still I think it's somewhat representative. He said, wisdom 2.0 is going to allow your employees to increase their emotional intelligence. And employees with higher EI are going to make you shitloads of money. <laughs> so again, we've gone far from some genuine insights of wisdom to something that's been picked up by corporations to somehow make more money. Yeah, I don't think Buddha would be down with that. No, I don't think he would. No. Well, I mean, so what's your takeaway after doing this book? Uh, I mean, it sounds like 
you're ambivalent about life hacking. Would that be a fair, a fair yes. judgment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it teaches us. So these distinctions we're making between geek and guru and nominal and optimal and some ethical sort of distinctions we might think about, like, is a particular hack, is it universal? Does it work if everyone does it or only if you do it? And I think there are some hacks out there that are like, I have a hack for cutting in line. And we said, well, if everyone tried to cut in line like that, that wouldn't be a better world. So we can ask, is it universal? Is it beneficial? And then interestingly enough, one of the important distinctions I pull from all of this is, is a Buddhist philosophical notion called near enemies. And the idea is that virtues often have an apparent enemy or opposite. So compassion and animosity, those are obvious near enemies. But there's also near enemies. They appear to be virtues, but they're not. So it's very easy for people maybe to confuse pity with compassion. So compassion, yes, that's a virtue. We want to be compassionate. But when we go out in our real lives and we start interacting with people and we're pitying them, it's not quite the same thing as compassion. So one of the insights I take away is I really think life hacking exemplifies this notion of near enemies. When we look at efficiency, our first impulse when we're overwhelmed with work is to try to be more efficient, but that's not the same thing as being effective. When we think about our relationships with other people, we think we could be connected or we could go on 100 dates or we could have sex with dozens of women in a particular month or year, but that isn't actually giving us connection. And similarly, wisdom 2.0 isn't necessarily actual real wisdom. So life hack, but do so thoughtfully. Yeah. Maybe would be. And the metaphor I ended up choosing was kind of like horse blinkers or blinders. And so we live in this world of distractions and choices, and it makes sense for us to want to put on the ear canceling headphones and maybe get a cubicle for our head and have these blinkers on. And that helps us look out into that, that distant vision of those goals that we want to achieve with our life. But in wearing these blinkers, we are blocking out a lot of stuff on the periphery. We're blocking out other people that we shouldn't be ignoring. Maybe we're trampling some people underfoot. And I actually toyed with the idea of calling this book Blinkered, but I thought that was too negative. But as I was writing the conclusion, I was still making use of this metaphor. At last year's South by Southwest, Panasonic actually demoed, they call it Wearspace, a, a literal set of blinkers with noise-suppressing headphones that you stick on your head. And I really recommend people Google it and have a look at the pictures. It's really remarkable. And Panasonic, it was just a demo, but there was a crowdsourcing in Japan and supposedly they're manufacturing them now. Supposedly, this really is the solution to the 21st century. That You put this weird thing that blocks your periphery and cancels out and drowns out all the sound around you. And, you know, that concerns me. Yes, it is going to give you some benefits, but at least you have to take that off some of the time and look at the people around you. Well, Joseph, is there someplace people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Uh, they can just Google me, Joseph Regal. I have a website that I update sometimes. I am on Twitter, though I don't t- pay a lot of attention. JM Regal to social media. It's one of my own life hacks is not to get you know too caught up in social media. And uh, my email is on my webpage, so people can email me as well. All right, Joseph Regal, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Joseph Regal. He's the author of the book, Hacking Life, Systemized Living and Its Discontent. It's available on amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work at his website, regal.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash hackinglife, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years, including some life hack articles. And if you like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, use code MANLINESS to sign up for a month free trial of Stitcher Premium. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and uh, you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Music.